Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. Hi, folks, and welcome to Strength to Be Human. This is your host, Mark Anthony Rossi, host, poet, and playwright. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Aerial Chart, and thank you for many of you folks that have contributed to that. I really do appreciate that. This is going to be episode number 110, Demons, Real and Imagined, and Artists. Now, this is definitely going to be an interesting uh, topic because we're going to talk about many of the things that can plague creative people. We'll talk about some of the famous ones, and we'll talk about in general how sometimes you can it can harm even people in in the modern in the modern day. Okay, I need to break down the title a little bit more too. I mean, uh, first of all, when we're talking about demons, uh, we are talking about in the metaphoric sense. Okay, I'm not talking about anything occultic here. All right, even Edgar Allan Poe, he didn't even believe in God. Okay, but it's not it's not hard to make a stretch that uh, between all the deaths around him and, and and his misery with his family situation. And uh, the the lack of uh, of love, and also of course uh, the the continual poverty, you know that definitely uh, became demons for him to have to uh, continually struggle against. Now, real and imagined, well, I guess that could be a little controversial because you know quite frankly, it doesn't really matter, you know, in the in the final result. If you're dealing with things on a mental condition, a mental health condition, uh, that uh, are slowing down your work, or, or causing you pain, or, or, or bringing harm to your health, or even making you see things that uh, nobody else was able to see. Because quite frankly, I could stand outside of you and say, that's imagined, but uh, to you it's real. So, it could well be real to a person even though it's imagined to the rest of us. And that's something that is real for them to deal with. You know, so it doesn't really matter if it's something that's invisible to us, because if it's visible to them, well, then that's hurting them, and that's just something they still have to deal with. So it's hard to say real and imagined, and I'm not trying to say that in a, in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way. It's just I think it's also important to try to point that out. All right, and of course, an artist here in this situation, we're not going to just talk about writers. I'm also going to bring examples with uh, musicians and an artist, uh, those that paint. And uh, dancers, uh, professional uh, dancers on the stage, particularly ballet. Okay, so we'll have writers, musicians, and of course, uh, uh, ballet dancers. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a million other types of forms of art out there. I'm sure they're all dealing with, uh, you know, depression in one instance or another. But you know, we don't have lots of material on sculptors and metal workers and you know, architects. Okay, so this is the ones we have on. A lot of good material on, so I want to just focus on those, and I don't want to have to speculate too much, okay? And that allows us to not do that by by pretty much working on some of the more uh, pronounced, uh, detailed, and, and researched examples, okay? All right, so we'll start with artists first. That's the ones that do painting, okay? Some of these you probably won't be too surprised about, but some of the depths of 
their depression and the things they have to deal with was incredibly um, uh, amazing and, and appalling at the same time, what they had to deal with and, and what they were still able to create. Uh, one of the first ones here, Edvard Munch. He is the uh, Norwegian uh, painter, uh, famous for the Scream. Remember that painting? It seemed to get stolen every 30 years or something, worth uh, tens of millions of dollars. Uh, he, he actually quoted, Sickness, madness, and death guard my crib. Yeah, he's not exactly uh, hanging out with the positive folks on that one. But he dealt with so many different levels of, of mental health issues. And unfortunately, it plagued him the rest of his life. Many of these people, it doesn't matter if they're from the 17th, 18th, 19th, or 20th century, you know, they wind up going to various mental health institutions that were around, uh, sanatoriums, uh, monasteries, uh, all kinds of different things they tried to do to try to help themselves to some, you know, extent or not. Uh, unfortunately, for most of them, it didn't it didn't do very much, uh, and it's a sad thing. Uh, next one, Beethoven, probably one of the greatest uh, musical geniuses of all time. Had bipolar, a really terrible example of it. A lot of mood swings, all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, I don't mean that in a pejorative kind of way. Just the crazy stuff that, you know, you're working with the guy. He seems normal one moment. And the next day, he's, you know, he's out there you know, talking to the sky and, you know, throwing a fit and, and, and trying to hit you with stuff. So, I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that he was dealing with. He'd go into those swings that he didn't even know who he was. Uh, he used alcohol to try to do whatever he can to deaden that. Wound up becoming alcoholic. Unfortunately, he died of liver disease from his alcoholism, more than probably his bipolar. But that's really where it started at. Uh, an incredible genius, uh, beautiful music, just a, a man plagued by by awful, horrendous uh, uh, demons. No, no doubt about no doubt about that. Uh, Van Gogh. Um, that's something that's probably not going to surprise people. Is the guy known? To cut his own ear off because uh, he was spurned by some some girl, you know, trying to propose to her. Um, he did incredible paintings, and many of them he did under deep influences of depression. And um, he even admitted that in his letters to his brother, and, and he was pretty open about it. Unlike others who kind of hid it, you know, like Beethoven was somebody that you know he tried to only go out when he felt he was ready to go out and talk to people. Otherwise, he wouldn't. So the only people that really knew that he was. Uh, you know, he was off his, his, his rocker at times where, where, you know, some of his personal family uh, members and, of course, uh, you know, like assistants and, and people that helped him because, you know, he was pretty well off. Those are the only people who knew about it. Most of the other people didn't really know anything about that. Van Gogh, on the other hand, uh, everybody knew about it. He made sure they knew about it. He didn't care. He, he just, that's how he was. He was really open about it. Kind of like out of the closet of mental illness. That's Van Gogh. Incredible paintings. He wound up successively committing suicide at the age of 37. I know, amazing. Alrighty. Here we go. Uh, writers. Uh, this is a more modern one. He was known for the uh, the giant novel, In for the Jest. Uh, David Foster Wallace hung himself. I know, amazing. Another Another great writer. Uh, who was dealing with depression right from the college days and onward. So, and he didn't die. Uh, I don't think he lived very long himself, unfortunately. Not too much longer after that. I've always speculated, and I think you've heard me on the shows had mentioned, because of my experience with some of these topics, and especially with with the therapy of, uh, of veterans, is that the more people who have to deal with, 
with depression and bipolar, post-stress and all of that. Now, they're all not the same thing. They all have different levels. They all have different symptoms and they all have different effects. So I don't I don't mean to put them all together only in the sense that they're in the family of mental health issues. OK, um, I, I just found from my own experience that the more people got themselves assistance, the more they were able to deal with it themselves and and, and the more they had support around them, family, friends, loved ones and all that the better chances they had of reintegrating into society and figuring out ways to manage it. You don't get rid of mental illness, but you can, in many instances, manage it to where you can have a, you know, a near normal life. It's not like it hasn't been done before. Why so many of these other people are not successful in this? I don't know. Scientifically, some say that some are more grave than others in their conditions and others. I mean, it's not hard to tell folks. And I'm not trying to be judgmental, but it's not hard to tell when you when you read a lot about their life situation that, you know, they spend so much time pushing people away and people get tired of that. They don't be around them anymore. A lot of times these people have died with very few people left in their life. Often died alone. So there you go. Not enough um, real counseling or therapy or certainly uh, the support. And without only of that, they're they left to their own devices, which unfortunately you know, is suicide. Now, I'm not saying this is the perfect um, reason and answer for why a lot of this stuff has happened, but it definitely has a play in it. And it, it cannot ignore the fact that so many of these people who committed suicide uh, simply didn't have much of that support mechanism. They, they cast it away or pushed it away or, you know, chased it away. And uh, so it definitely has a, a, a real factor in that. Alrighty. Um, as we already know, Edgar Allan Poe, even though ironically, for all the issues he had with drinking and the issues he had with, uh, with definitely some sort of depression, we don't really know what, what kind of depression he had because he wrote in a, in a sober fashion and, and, and wrote some brilliant, brilliant things. And he winds up dying of exposure out in the alleyway someday after having a couple of drinks. He never died of alcoholism or depression, so we don't know what he really died of in the end. But um, he was definitely a, a classic figure in this sort of thing and definitely somebody that, in the end, uh, lacked that kind of support. But he didn't commit suicide. And if you read enough about his life and enough about his work, it's pretty obvious to me that he wouldn't have been one of those that ever did. He would have kept going and going and going. I'm convinced if he didn't die early, he, he would have eventually had a successful career in terms of you know seeing money and having some sort of a semblance of a life. But that, unfortunately, was taken from him. Now, these next two writers are poets, they're female, and we know about them, and it's probably not going to be a, a big shock to you that they had to deal with this. Uh, Sylvia Plath, one of the important female poets of the early 20th century, um, she failed to kill herself, uh, she went into institutions, uh, a, a brilliant poet, um, she even got herself electroshock, that was, the, that was the new rage back in the day to try to help people, and it still didn't work. Uh, one day, um, she got up, she made breakfast for her children, she wrote a note for the housekeeper, and she stuck her head into a gas oven until she died. She just couldn't take it anymore. Whatever kind of support she had or not, I don't know. She's more well off, so, I mean, she actually had a housekeeper, okay? But, as you can see, none of that mattered. The children didn't matter, the housekeeper didn't matter. You know, in the end, uh, she she needed to go for some reason, and that's what she did. I know, incredibly tragic and, and, and just 
utterly horrible. Anne Saxton, another one here. Incredible amount of time in, in, in institutions. I, I mean, so much. I'm not, I'm, I can't believe she's able to write as much as she did. So much time just in these places. She eventually uh, found some time to herself and locked herself in the garage, turned the car on, put the windows down, and, and committed suicide by uh, carbon monoxide poisoning. I've actually seen this in real life from somebody that did that in the military. Not a pretty sight. Unbelievable. But it's something that had a long history of that. And how they're able to create, well, we, we know enough now uh, from um, scientific study and, and from you know social um, research that um, creativity, uh, it, it borders on, on mental illness in terms of some of the higher activity levels in your brain and what you're able to see and accomplish. So it's not that unusual to be very creative and still have a mental illness. Now, don't get me wrong. You can still be creative and not be mentally ill. You know, but those that are mentally ill, they can still tap into that area. So that's the reason why. It doesn't shut them off. Now, I might end their life early and certainly give them lots of gruesome pain and, and grief and all kinds of horrible things they got to deal with. But, you know, they're still able to be uh, productive for quite some time. Now, a study recently, and this is even worse than um, writers, because writers, it's been said that about half of them have some form of depression and mental illness. Well, apparently 73% of musicians suffer from some kind of mental illness. Uh, scientists speculate that the additional burden of the performance to have to go out there in front of people is reason why the percentage is that much higher versus writers, which, which can be a little bit more, you know, uh, solitary creatures if they had to be, where, you know, musicians, it's kind of hard that to do. You're going to be rehearsing with people. You know what I mean? You're going to be cutting records with people and then you're going to go out there and perform in front of 10,000, 20,000 people. Kind of hard to be by yourself. So apparently it, it provides more stress and more uh, more anxiety. And, and this is probably why that number is so much higher. As you know, some of the most uh, famous of our modern uh, musicians have committed suicide over the last couple of years. Uh, Chris Cornell from Soundgarden, Chester Bennington from Lickenden Park, Keith Flint from The Prodigy, uh, Brian Wilson is one of the few that uh, had such a lifelong bout with it, and he was able to manage it with uh, with drugs and therapy from the Beach Boys. Uh, he's quoted as saying that he's not as creative as he can be now because uh, he felt that he needed those demons to become creative, but he traded all of that for having some kind of normalcy in life to still be around with his family and still have some kind of happiness. And that's a, he's at peace with that, so that's great for him. And you know, it's good to have some kind of a positive success story here because we don't have too many on the show, unfortunately. Other than what I can repeatedly say on and is is to get help, is to talk to people, is to figure out ways to do something to, to mitigate it because it can be it can be dealt with. Uh, Eric Clapton is somebody that dealt with that. I'm I'm sure it can't really help after you know he he loses his child at five years old too. That can't really be that helpful on having to deal with that, and you got to deal with that as well. Especially since you, you probably have enormous guilt about that. Leaving them with a you know, housekeeper and then the kid falling out the window. Incredible. Uh, Bruce Springsteen opened up about it recently. That he's dealing with it a lot. Alright. Um, we got some we got some dances over here that incredibly enough. Um, but we'll still talk about a few more musicians I have. Stevie Nicks has is, is dealt with us a great deal. 
I know she dealt into various new age religions and stuff like that, hoping that's going to help her. But I know eventually she turned to alcoholism and drugs and she had to deal with that for a while. But she deals with this uh, depression. Um, Sid Barrett, big fan, uh, big fan favorite of mine. Um, he is the founder of Pink Floyd, did a lot of their early material. But they eventually had to bring an exit for him out of the band because he he's couldn't function anymore. He's just he's just that out there, unfortunately. It's sad. He wound up dying of cancer, not uh, uh, of the of the depression. And I know he did some um, soul albums and stuff like that, but he just couldn't function around people anymore, so he just couldn't be in the band anymore. Thankfully, they were able to carry on. But I, I read that both uh, David Gilmour, the guitarist, and Roger Waters, the uh, the vocalist, both of them have also depression issues themselves, but not to the extent that he had. Um, now, we're coming to dances. We have a, a number of ones. Uh, uh, Mari Madrid, uh, uh, Sydney Magruder Washington. Um, she's under the belief, and, and now there's some studies suggesting that the perfectionism that they really push in, in dance, it really brings on depression. And, and that's something they have to deal with. And it's more it's more of a closeted thing in, in, in ballet and dance than it is in most of the other professions, incredibly enough. Uh, Vasilev Nijinsky, that one of the greatest, or considered the greatest male dancer ever, he had to deal with it and, and, and all that came with that, and he opened up about it in his book. Um, if anyone remembered The Black Swan, that, that's an, an incredible uh, movie based on a real event where a woman who's an incredible, brilliant, genius dancer uh, starts acting odd, and they're like, well, this is just some diva stuff, you get that when you become famous, and you become brilliant, and blah, 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 and that happens, yeah, it happens with opera singers as well, they get a little diva-ish, men and women, but they felt that's all this was, they didn't realize that, uh, no, she was slowly sinking into schizophrenia, and that's what this was, but unfortunately, that behavior, you know, it masked that for a long time, until they finally realized that, that, that she was, uh, she was out there with that, and, and had to had to deal with that. An incredible movie and, and, and an incredible uh, lesson in, in all of that. Okay. So depression in the arts, especially in, in creativity, I wouldn't say that it goes hand in hand because it doesn't have to be there, and, and it's not always there. There's plenty of people who are creative that didn't have to deal with this, so don't have to deal with it. But it's apparent. That it is, it is a factor in a lot of creativity. You, you see too much of it. There's too many examples, you know, to 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 ignore what's 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 going on. You know, I know plenty of people I talk to, and you know, just today's world dealing with writing, they have to deal with these sort of things, you know. And oftentimes, writing, especially, and you know, I, I understand music can do this as well. It, it could be some form of its own type of therapy. You know, if you want to use it that way, you can. But you have to make sure that, you know, you're conscious of your using it that way so that you can kind of get some benefit from it. You do in the end. And I find especially with dealing with military veterans and post-stressed, there are some answers that you have to try to formulate to come up with in order to start dealing with it. It's not something that forever eludes you and then you just stay that way. There are ways you have to get some resolution. You got to be able to get over some of these things. Getting over them or getting some answers for some of the things that plague you is not the same as you now cured mental illness. You no longer have a mental health problem. But what it, what it does say is it, it reduces the intensity of the experiences. It reduces the, you know, the, the pain 
and, and the mysterious hole that people have because they start understanding what that is and start figuring out ways and how to divert their attention to things that are wholesome, that are positive, that are, you know, fruitful for their for their existence. And, and this is what has to get done with writing if you're doing that. You know, if you're just wallowing it in, in, into a, a deeper hole of self-pity, then that's not becoming therapy. You're actually just feeding into depression. You don't want to be doing that. Now, I'm not saying that everything you write has to be happy-go-lucky. It could be some tough stuff. That's fine. But you got to be finding some answers in there. you got to be able to look for something that you can hang your hat on to that, that's going to carry you to the next day. Otherwise, you know, like a number of examples I have over there, I mean, people wind up destroying themselves. And I can't tell you, because I have never felt that, that I want to kill myself. I've never had that that feeling. I can't tell you what that is and what that's supposed to do. I can't tell how you can be so in anguish that you can't do anything. I mean, we know, you know, for a lot of actors, they've dealt with this. Uh, we know Robert Williams is one of the most famous examples of dealing with this and all that drinking and alcoholism and, and drugs he had to deal with. And, and then, of course, various the, the therapies and everything like that and all the creative, happy, fun work he did and still killed himself. By hanging himself. We know that with Anthony Bourdain, the the writer and, and, and the chef and all the wonderful educational things of years I spent watching his show and learning things and being so happy with him and just for him to do that. To spook the lifelong suffering that must be there. It's just, I don't know. It, it's, if they can't figure out answers, they don't want to figure out answers. Are they just so used to living some kind of a fake life that they get tired of that one day and they say, no, I'm just going to kill myself? Who, who really knows? I, but it would be great if we try to figure these, some of these things out. You know, I, I, I worry sometimes in a society that it has no problem interviewing every serial killer that can ever be captured alive and try to figure out ways that's going to help us catch serial killers and understand how they think, write giant studies on it, but we don't figure out how people are killing themselves. They just take it as it's supposed to be part of life. Yeah, he killed himself. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I just saw him at the bakery yesterday. Come on. This shouldn't be normal. Okay? It shouldn't be. And they say that mental health is one of the last stigmas, especially in America. And I, and I really think that it has a lot to do with the, the gun violence we have on, especially these mass shootings and, and, and things along that line. Definitely has to do with a lot of with mental health issues. So we still need have to have a society that talks more about it and, and tackles it all. And I definitely want to see more. I know that the, the President Trump had put in a big autism bill, the fund trying to understand and learn and deal with more of that, with, especially with parents dealing with autistic children. You know, we all know that autism is a, a, a type of mental illness, a, of a brain disorder type. You know, but a lot of those folks can function and do a lot of things, and, and, and some of them not as much. It just depends on, you know, what, what, what sort of severity level they're at. But i like to also see some more, more studying on, on mental illness itself. Why don't we look into more, you know, bipolar and other ways to tackle it that not always are pharmaceutical. I mean, the drug companies have done a wonderful job finding every drug in the world that they can use, and some of that helps people. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not mocking it, okay? But I also think that. You know, we can't be a society that um, every time somebody uh, acts up in a, in a manner, you know, that we're not trying to figure out how to deal with it without a pill. We can't just drop a pill every time we have a problem. You'll, you'll be taking 20 pills a day. Who wants to live that way? 
Not only is it expensive, uh, it, 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 sometimes it's not helpful. And remember, every time we take a medicine, whether it be short-term or long-term, it, you know, it could have other effects. Just because it's there to help you with certain things doesn't mean it can't hurt you in other ways. So every time you take a medication, it, it, it can have other effects. It's a bit of a gamble, you know? And, and why not deal with some things that have to do with writing therapy or, you know, music therapy, speaking in, in, in a group therapy or, or uh, just a one-to-one counseling, verbal things that have nothing to do with, uh, you know, putting something in your body. Seeing if maybe you can start dealing with it that way first or foremost or maybe all the time, you know? So I don't rule out the pills and I don't rule out the medication that some people need, okay? But I do think that we overdo it and I do think that it really should be for the severest cases and it really should be for the last resort, not something we just rush over. You know, too much in the VA system is about giving people a script and let them go home and then they wonder why they harm themselves or, or, or having their health in, in worse shape. You can't just have a, a, a pill and, and think that's going to be, a, you know, the answer to everything because it's not. You know, we don't want to turn a one person's problem into another. You know, that's how you that's how you create addicts. And we don't want to be doing that either. It's not unusual though, folks, that lots of addicts, their underlying problem is some form of depression. That's how they became addicts, because they wanted to doing something else to deal with the pain. And I'm saying, yeah, do something else. Just don't take alcohol and drugs. You got to go find somebody to talk to. You got to figure out ways that they can therapeutically address this. Because that's how you come join back to rest with us. That's how you can join us so that we can understand what's going on. Do whatever we can to help you. Especially those that that, that create. Because too many of us, you know, we lose the battle early. uh, Because we spend too much time isolating ourselves. Which, you know, writing can be very isolating in itself. So it's almost like it's a perfect, you know, it's a perfect suit for depression to wear, you know. I'm a writer. I should be by myself, blah, blah, blah. Not necessarily. I honestly think you should be the opposite if you're a writer and you have depression. You shouldn't be so solitary. You should be out there more, not less. That's just my opinion. But, you know, I think that anything we do in life that feeds into these sort of things, it's a bad idea. And if you heard that about the perfectionism and, and dance and how they grew, they believe it's creating a lot of depression. And I happen to believe in that because I don't believe in perfectionism. I don't believe in perfection. I always feel that it was a dangerous, almost a paranoid way of going about things. It, you spend so much energy on what? What, 99% is not enough? It's got to be 100? Come on. It's idiotic. It really is. So I'm suspicious of that. I always have been. And you should be too. We want to do the best we can to be as normal as we can. But, you know, we still got to be who we are. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay? Sometimes that's some of the battle that people have to face when they're dealing with mental illness. Is how do I live with it? Figure out ways to deal with it and still be myself when myself might be different than anybody else. Yeah, that's true. And quite frankly... I, I don't think it's anything different than I would counsel my own children, you know? Not everybody you could be around is going to get who you are. Not everybody can be your friend. I don't just never mean they're going to be your enemy, but it doesn't necessarily going to be your friend either. They might not get you. So why shouldn't that advice and that philosophy on, on living life, why that shouldn't be any different for somebody dealing with depression? 
get people that get you. I don't mean necessarily you have to hang around other depressed people, but if that works and if that, and that works for you all, why not? It's, it's not a bad start. But again, get around people that are gonna they're gonna get you. you. You'll have some family members that may understand you, and others that might not. Okay, just hang around the ones that do. That's all you can really do in the end. That can become your support system. But no one says that you have to navigate and travel around with people that don't get you, that look at you weird, that have a, a distance, that, you know, think that, you know, you're going to snap like a Hollywood movie and go off and rob a bank five minutes after you were, you know, giving their daughter some some milk uh, in, in a bottle in her cradle. I mean, come on. That's how people gravitate to stereotypes. And the next thing you know, they're treating people with uh, mental illness you know, in, in, in a horribly stereotypical manner. And that feeds into other people's depression when they, they see that other people are treating them, you know, strangely or treating them unfairly, you know, or, or, or treating them unequally. That's why you need to get around people that get you because that won't happen then. They'll do their best to not let that happen. And that's what we need in, in, in this day and age. You know, uh, we, we I, I think that we moan and groan too much about the buzzwords of, you know, uh, racial uh, discrimination or, you know, uh, sexism or he doesn't like transgender this or that or that, whatever. In the end, although, those folks, whether it's a racial minority or transgender person or even a person with, with mental illness, in the end, those folks, they still have some responsibility to try to be around people that get them and not understand them because not everybody's going to do that. And just because somebody doesn't understand you or just because somebody may be uncomfortable because you're transgender, that doesn't automatically make them a hated person. It doesn't make them a bigot either. They don't understand. And maybe you won't have the vocabulary or the tools or the know-how to make them understand. Maybe they never will. Oh, well, go on to the next person that might. It's still part of your job to do so. Okay? Part, I think, of the, the complaining about this discrimination is that somehow the whole world is supposed to shift to have you fit in. People don't actually operate that way, folks. That's a, like, that's a nice political agenda from somebody that's trying to sell you something. But I'm telling you right now, as a host, as a writer, as somebody that knows something about mental illness, that's a fantasy. Okay? You've got to figure out ways to fit in. Not the other way around. You know how you do that? By getting around people that understand you, that love you, that respect you, that get who you are. Okay? Get around somebody that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to them that, you know, you're going to transition from one gender to another. Or, or that you, you're a dude, but sometimes you like to wear girls' clothes. Get around somebody that understands that and they don't have a big deal about that. Okay? You know? I personally don't have a problem with that. I think it's kind of expensive to have that kind of situation. And I, and I I think I would have some jokes and, and make fun with you with about it just because it, it's kind of a funny thing, but it's not something that would be a bigger than a hatred thing. You, you can get it, you can get used to that real quickly. You know, it's not a hard thing to do. I had an uncle that was sort of like that. He was gay, and sometimes he liked to do something like that. You know, I knew him. He, he was part of the person that helped raise me, and you know, I laughed it off, and and I still had a, a wonderful relationship with him. Guess what? I'm not dressing like a girl. I'm not gay. I don't hate those people. And, and I learned a lot a lot from that guy who sometimes was a girl. <laughs> what are you going to do? And it, it, it happens. I mean, and I've, I've known others that do the same thing. Your job to fit in. 
Not the world's job to make you fit in. Now, the world should definitely make sure they have laws that don't discriminate against you, and a lot of the places they do. And we're still working on that. That should be a given in our society. Yeah, we should work on that. I don't have any problem with that. But the rest of it, that's sort of a personal, private matter. You, you can't force people to like you, you know? That's just the way it is. You can't force a bakery to make you a cake if they don't agree with the type of wedding you're having. You just can't. If those are their beliefs, guess what? Go to another damn bakery. Don't sue people to death and just make things more confusing for folks. Go to another bakery. There's plenty of them out there. Go to the place that's going to take care of you because that's the place that gets your business in the first place. They should have your business. I don't know why the hell you want to spend money with somebody that don't don't approve of you. Makes no sense. Go to some place that does. You know, so it's just that simple. Get yourself to fit in. And the best way to do that is get around people around there that support you, that understand you, that like you, that love you, that respect you. It's just that simple. I know that's a little bit more work, but guess what, folks? That's what we need to do in, 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 our, in ourselves. If we want to have a life, it, it causes work. Relationships are work. The very thing we're talking about by fitting into society you're causing yourself to be able to fit in and to have a relationship with the society that you're choosing. And that's it. It costs work. Like any relationship. If you want it to last, you want it to be great, and it's going to be a lot of work. That's just the way it is. Okay? Don't get fooled by these fly-by-night politic people. They tell you that somehow we're all supposed to say that we love you, we understand you, and everything's great. When a lot of us don't. Maybe it'll be years before a lot of us do. Maybe... There'll be forever that we don't understand you. And only some people are going to. Oh well. Most people, whether they're gay or not, transgender or not, black or white or not, they're not going to have a billion friends in their life anyway. They're only going to have a small group. So why are you any different than anybody else? Get the group that should be with you. Go pick those people out. This way you know who they are. It's just that simple. It's not that difficult to do. And by doing that, Right there, that helps you tackle some of the depression you would have to deal with when, when people in it. Because you're going to get that now and then. Even with a great group, you're going to get you're going to run into other people that just won't understand. Dude, we were just playing baseball last week. What the hell are you doing with a dress on? Well, you know, it's my dress day. <laughs> oh, well. That's going to happen. It's not that, I don't really think it's that terribly difficult to deal with. You know, we just got to put on, uh, I, I feel... You know, a bit of a, of emotional armor about it and just, and, and just go out there and, and be who we're supposed to be. Because in the end, if we haven't figured out a, a way to be honest with ourselves, you know, we're already given into depression. We're already given into to mental illness. Because one of the things that keeps it at bay, one of the things that tackles it, one of the things that keeps it in a manageable level is us knowing who we are. Knowing the people that we have around us that we can trust. Knowing the things that we believe in. That's what keeps it. And when we lose ourselves in, in something else, well, then you have the whole world on you. And, and people, they can't figure out the life for you. You have to do that. Sometimes creativity can help us in the right direction. But in the end, we got to walk that path ourselves. And we can do it. Plenty of people have. If anyone watched... Um, the Saturday Night Live with uh, RuPaul. What a wonderful example of somebody. Uh, a lifelong crush dresser. Able to get themselves to be a successful entertainer. And be comfortable in who they are. And go out there and have fun about it. And people won't bat an eye. Because they're, they're who they're supposed to be. 
I guarantee he, she, or whatever you want to call him, in the end, has a good group of friends around them. People they can trust and they understand. Because that's how they're able to stay in the industry that long. And then harm themselves and still be happy people. So, three cheers for you, RuPaul. It's a great example and, and a real a real good real good career that you have over there and that you can get over to, to Saturday Night Live, which and I think in, in entertainment is really one of the pinnacles. It really is. I mean, you've got to be somewhere to be able to be on that show. So God bless you. I think that's excellent. I, I definitely like to see that and I had a lot of fun with that with that show and, and all of that. It was, it was just a lot of fun, but it definitely helps illustrate my point over here. Okay. Keep in mind, folks, all of us, even if, we've been, even if we don't battle mental illness on a regular basis, we all have certain demons that we deal with. Lots of us have what I call childhood traumas that not necessarily are depression, but there's still things that pop up now and then that we have to deal with it. Sometimes we haven't dealt with it in a relationship. Sometimes relationships we've entered to have given us certain bouts of melancholy. And art can help. But in the end, it's really about the choices that we make that helps us really get someplace positive or helps us get someplace like a lot of these folks. I mean, I'm certainly not ridiculing Ann Sexton or Sylvia Plath or any of these folks or, you know, um, Vincent Van Gogh. I'm certainly not criticizing them, but in the end, they chose to kill themselves. I mean, some of them tried to help themselves and others like Van Gogh didn't. Just kept going and going until it eventually caught up to him. But they made those they made those choices. So I I remind people and and take this as about as serious as you can take anything I'm saying. If you can choose to kill yourself, you you can choose to live another day. To hope that something else better can come about to help you tackle this situation. To make a phone call, to reach out to a person, to try this therapy or that therapy or all of that. You can. You can, If you can choose to kill yourself, well, you can choose 29 different things that has nothing to do with killing yourself. Because those other 29 things, they're a whole lot more damn hopeful than, than the final step. Where you don't have any more chance. Whether you're a spiritual person or not, whether you think you go someplace or not afterwards. You know, I have my own ideas about that, but in the end... It doesn't really matter what you believe about that because once you do that, you, you just stop all the chances of doing anything on this planet and all the chances you had to, to try to gain some kind of happiness or you know, put some more uh, artistic material out there. So choose something different, please. And I think in the end, once you do, especially the way the world is working, where people are becoming more open to this thing and where it's talked about more than ever before, you know, you have a real you have a real chance that you can find a measure of happiness. Is this going to be the same happiness as other people who don't have mental illnesses? Perhaps not. But it's your portion, and you fought for it, and you've earned it, and you have a right to hold on to it. So hold on to it, okay? Until next time, folks. God bless. This is Mark Anthony Rossi. Strength to be human. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.